Welcome back. My name is Robert Fleming, and I'm one of the partners at Fleming & Curdy PLC in Tucson, Arizona, an elder law firm. With me today is one of the other partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, and we're going to do uh, our, our usual weekly podcast elder law issues discussion. Today, Elizabeth, I thought we'd talk about guardianship. And maybe we could start with uh, a little definition of terms, what guardianship means in Arizona, because it's not the same in every state, is it? No, it's not. This is very state-specific. So in Arizona, if we're talking about a guardian, that means that somebody or more than one person, you can have co-guardians, were appointed by a court to help manage health care decisions for somebody else. It could be a minor child or it could be an adult. And most of the time when we work with guardians, we're working with guardians of adults. And, and in order to have a guardian, an adult, we can set minors aside for a minute, an adult has to be incapacitated under Arizona law. And incapacitated is defined fairly precisely as being unable to make or communicate responsible decisions concerning your welfare. What that means in the real world is that uh, usually a doctor, but a, a medical professional has opined that you have a condition that makes you unable to either make or perhaps communicate those those uh, those wishes or uh, or responsible decisions in any case and it's the court that makes the decision whether or not the medical evidence provides that uh, document the necessary documentation to show incapacity that's really a good point elizabeth thank you for for calling that out because so often um, we talk about how important it is to have a doctor who will say that you're incapacitated before you can have a guardian appointed. Uh, but obviously the ultimate decision is a judge's decision. And really it takes both of them. It takes both the doctor rendering the opinion and, uh, and the judge making the final decision. And I say doctor, but it's not strictly speaking just doctor. But what I thought I'd talk with you today about, Elizabeth, is uh, not just how to get somebody appointed as guardian, but what it means when a guardian has been appointed. And again, remembering that we are talking about Arizona law. It's not the same in every state. The rules may be similar in other states. What, what is, first of all, what authority does a guardian have? Well, Robert, a guardian has authority to speak with health care providers, to consent uh, to different kinds of medical procedures, to help prepare and complete admissions paperwork if somebody is going into the hospital, or perhaps somebody is going to change their placement and go into assisted living or an independent living facility, but the person doesn't have capacity to sign the documents themselves. So the kinds of authority that a guardian has under a general guardianship is really pretty expansive, Robert. You can have a limited guardianship, meaning that your guardian is only authorized to do certain things, maybe only authorized to get medical documentation that would otherwise be private. But most of the time when we talk about general guardians, it depends on a case-by-case circumstance on how much work a guardian might do. For instance, Robert, if you have somebody who is able to communicate decisions and preferences about where she lives, um, what kinds of medication she's taking, what kinds of medical procedures she wants to have, the guardian's role really should be a supportive one, providing support and autonomy to the, to the ward. But, Robert, in a case where somebody may have advanced Alzheimer's, is not able to make or communicate decisions related to medication or where she might be living, all of a sudden the guardian's job may become much more involved. So uh, in these current times, we think about 
vaccinations. Is a guardian, first of all, does a guardian have the authority to authorize vaccination for their incapacitated ward? And I probably ought to disclaim that we don't like the word ward, but that's the one in the law and nobody has come up with a really better word. So does the person who has a guardian, uh, do they have any say-so in whether they get a COVID vaccine? Good question, Robert. Well, the answer is yes. Both yes, that the person does have a say, they will be able to express their preference. And yes, their guardian does have authority to consent to the administration of the vaccine. Sometimes we see people who are uncomfortable with the decisions that their guardian might be making on their behalf. So it is important that when we talk about guardianship, people understand that just because somebody has the authority to, for instance, authorize a vaccination or authorize um, a certain kind of medical procedure, the person is still allowed to speak up for himself or herself. And it's important that we pause and consider circumstances like a vaccination um, where somebody might have strong religious preferences or somebody may have concerns or medical history, they may have allergies, the kinds of things that a guardian needs to be aware of before signing any kind of consent. And Robert, I can tell you, this morning, I got my COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. And thank you very much. And I was able to sign the consent paperwork myself. But if I hadn't been able to, I didn't need a guardian to do that. I actually have a power of attorney. So we also need to remind people today that when we talk about guardianship, that's a completely separate thing than when we're talking about somebody's healthcare power of attorney. So often we have clients come to us and say, I have a power of attorney for my mom, but now apparently I need a guardianship. No, probably you don't. If you have a healthcare power of attorney, that probably obviates the need to go through the guardianship process, unless there's some real issue, some family dispute, some inability to affect a, a decision. Um, you're right, Elizabeth, that the healthcare power of attorney should usually avoid the necessity for appointment of a guardian at all. And Robert, you're one of the people who I've learned a lot from about guardianship. When there's a guardian appointed for somebody, the person's civil liberties have been changed. Their ability to make some decisions for themselves, himself or herself, has been changed. And so before we ever work with somebody to um, consider guardianship, we really consider what the medical evidence may be whether a healthcare power of attorney is, is appropriate or if somebody has capacity to do that, whether that's an avenue to pursue. One of the things you wanted to talk about today, Robert, was the reporting for a guardian. And it's important for people listening today who are considering whether or not they want to become guardian for a loved one or a friend, family member, to understand that they have ongoing reporting duties to the court. You can't just be appointed guardian and have this authority and carry on and not continue to have some reporting function to the court, the court will continue to have oversight of the guardian. When I first started to practice law, which is almost, I am shocked to say, almost 50 years ago, once a guardian was appointed, the court basically had no further contact. And when they began to implement the requirement that you do annual reports, they were astonished to find out how many people subject to guardianship had died decades before, and they didn't even know about it. Uh, and so that's one of the kind of mundane reasons the court now is asking for an annual report. They require that you take the ward, the subject of the guardianship, to a doctor for a, a checkup, and, and you might say, but there's no health issue. My 
my daughter for whom I'm guardian doesn't really have any medical issues. Why does she have to go see a doctor? Well, that's just the way the court has of establishing that your daughter uh, who is subject to the guardianship is still among us. And, uh, and, and it's a requirement. It's just going to be something you have to do. In a general way, being a guardian is not so much fun that everybody ought to rush out and get a guardianship over a, a family member. It would be great to try to think of ways to avoid it, uh, both for the cost and for the administrative headache. And Robert, I think there's often a misconception that somebody who is appointed guardian um, has the authority to handle somebody's estate when the person dies. That's not correct. Um, the authority that a guardian has really is only for the person's lifetime. So when we talk to people about estate planning, sometimes we'll meet with somebody who is a guardian. The guardian will say, well, the court appointed me, and now I want to appoint so-and-so. So when I die, this person can be the successor guardian and take care of my loved one. You can't do that. It has to be the court that will appoint a successor guardian. So we do work with people who are doing some planning and, and who may be aging and decide that they want to have a successor guardian or a co-guardian appointed. And that's a really important things to talk, thing to talk about because if you are somebody's guardian and the guardian dies, then that usually will satisfy the court to show emergency circumstances that somebody else needs to be appointed guardian. Um, remember that the court can appoint a guardian on both a temporary and a permanent basis. And so sometimes, Robert, if we have a guardian who's died, the family will contact us and we will help somebody become appointed guardian on a temporary basis until a new permanent guardian can be appointed. Some other states have something that they call often a standby guardianship. So maybe you could name your, your daughter to be your son's guardian upon your death. Uh, Arizona doesn't allow you to do that in the court process. You can, in your will, say, I want my daughter to be the guardian of my son if, in, if I should die, uh, but, uh, but that still does require a follow-up court proceeding, as you say, Elizabeth. It's, a, it's often more complicated than, uh, than uh, you really think it ought to be. Um, and of, that, of course, that's because, because this whole process is protective of people to make sure that they don't just have their rights taken away or, or modified without, without some real thought and uh, judicial oversight going into it. And Robert, I think when we consider guardians and we also consider the kind of planning that they're responsible for doing, the planning relates to not only making regular doctor's appointments and checkups and, um, and paying attention to the ward's health, but the guardian's also responsible for making sure that if a doctor has questions about putting an advanced directive in place, um, a some people refer to this as an orange form, a most form, a pulsed form, wherever you are in the states. Uh, different states call this form different names, but uh, usually it's identified by an orange form that a doctor or medical provider will sign saying that somebody, their preference is not to be taken into the hospital and resuscitated, that they be allowed to, um, to die where they are in their home. That's a form that's also very state-specific, but a guardian does have a duty to make sure that if a provider is recommending that form be considered, the guardian considers it. So I think bottom line is it's a lot of work and a lot of responsibility to be a guardian. There's a lot of misunderstanding out there about what the limits are on your, on your power and, uh, and your, re your requirement to consult with the ward, the subject of the guardianship. 
before making at least some decisions, depending on their ability to communicate. Uh, I hope we've given everyone a little bit of background information about Arizona guardianship today. And, um, and folks, feel free to send us questions that come to you from these kinds of discussions or other topics that you wish we would talk about. We're always interested in speaking directly to our audience. But we do these podcasts, Elder Law Issues, more or less weekly. We are coming up on a hundred podcast episodes. I remember when we did the first one, it seemed a little bit silly to put a three-digit number in there. Uh, and um, uh, now we're going to be using three-digit numbers very shortly here. I'm Robert Fleming. I'm one of the partners at Fleming & Curdy, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. One of the other partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, has been talking with me about guardianship. We hope you will join us again for our next Elder Law Issues episode. Thanks, everyone.